Hey everybody, welcome to episode 3 of the Tech Huddle. Today we're talking about the Elon versus Zuckerberg smackdown, the submarine that really did not have to disappear, and Figma dev mode. After that, we'll be talking about no-code versus full-code solutions. How much code do you actually need to launch your side project or your startup? And can you rely on solutions where you don't need any at all? Also, on top of that, do we have to worry about these tools taking any of our jobs away from us? That also includes things like AI code generators. All right, so we've got a lot to talk about this week, so let's get into it. Hey, that was a good intro. That was Thanks. a great intro. From now on, you. you do the intro. You nailed that in one go. I always I was get halfway we should, through. Well, the thing is, you went first, and then I was just I was like, just do what Kelvin did. <laughs> Then we'll get back practice at it. So, but let's uh, let's let's jump into the news first. So, what's what's your thoughts on uh, Elon versus Zuckerberg? So, this is a real thing. I've been reading articles about it, and yeah. I I don't know the exact specifics around the details, but it yeah. sounds like Elon called out Zuckerberg on Twitter. I know it's a, it's you know he did he did but I think it's Zuckerberg who originally said he wanted to fight Elon Musk or something like that and then Elon found out and then he's totally agreed to it. It seems to be this thing in the US right now where everybody's holding boxing matches against each other. They wanted to do um, jujitsu, which Mark Zuckerberg does, and he's apparently really good at it. In a very I think Mark he won Zuckerberg-y. a world title recently. I'm not sure if he just. It's so it, it's but... it's so in the character of Mark Zuckerberg to be good at something like this, you know. I don't know if you watched the Lex Friedman podcast, Don't Switch podcast, uh, but he was talking. They're talking about this. My favorite submission position in the uh, in jujitsu is choking them out from behind. You know, choking them feels wrong. I like to just you know, it feels like it's just so creepy coming from him. You know, with the the context around it. And, you know, he's a robot and he's also a lizard person and Facebook, right? That he also loves to just destroy and dominate people in jujitsu, whatever. But yeah, Elon's totally a go for it. He was memeing for it. And then allegedly that uh, uh, Zuckerberg came back. He's like, is he actually serious about this? He actually wants to do it? And and Elon said, yes, they want to do it. His only condition is it happens at the Vegas Octagon. Uh- <laughs> Dana White. And- must be yeah. losing his mind. I read an article, which was an interview with Dana White. So for those of you who don't know, Dana White runs the UFC. He basically built mm-hmm. the UFC. Yeah. And so he is he is a genius at mm-hmm. make, you know making money out of people fighting each other. And so previously, the largest pay-per-view event, please double check my stats here. I read this today, so I think I'm close. The largest pay-per-view event in history was Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. Which generated six hundred million dollars in pay per view sales. This would uh, generate more. Yeah, yeah, and so Floyd <laughs> Floyd Mayweather took two hundred seventy five million home as the winner, and Conor McGregor pocketed eighty million dollars as the loser. So Dana White was saying that this, like the Elon Elon versus Zuckerberg pay per view, he would charge like a hundred dollars a hundred dollars US instead of the typical 80 and he thinks it would eclipse the one billion dollars in sales mark uh, he thinks this would be the biggest fight in the history of fights like the biggest thing happen. ever it won't happen I don't in my opinion happen. i didn't think no. elon would end up buying twitter though so 
You know, he yeah, does. true. He's he's a bit unpredictable sometimes. He, well, and he tried to get out of it, but he committed to it, and then he's just like, "God, all right, I'm not getting out of it. Lean into yeah, it. I'm not getting out of it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Then let's go ahead and do it." And uh, I, I feel like at this point, he's 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 going so hard for it because he's trying to psych psych Zuckerberg out of it. <laughs> um, and maybe he's like, "Oh, okay, maybe I, I don't want to fight Elon Musk. That could be a bit of a risky move." I don't know what the benefit of this would be for Elon. I see what the benefit of calling him out for the fight is. So he's going to generate a whole bunch of media attention, which is what he does. That's why Tesla is the most valuable electric car company in the world, even though they're not the most profitable electric car company in the world, or they weren't. You know, like, he- there was a time where like they eclipsed every other car manufacturer put together. Mm. Uh, but yet, you know, Toyota was the most profitable, for example. Uh, and don't hold me to that, but it was something along those lines. And so, and the reason for that is Elon is a very public figure. He has a lot of people that follow him because they love him. He has a lot of people that follow him because he hates him. And he says yep. stuff that generates headlines. So mm. I get why Elon would do it. It's a great idea uh, in terms of it just keeps people talking about him. And he always seems to do this. He will do something crazy wild. He'll generate a whole bunch of media attention and then people will talk about him and then he dies off for a bit and then suddenly he'll just come out with some <laughs> other crazy, batshit crazy idea and then people will well, be talking forget, about him again. He, he's literally the, the person that they based the character of Iron Man off in the Iron Man movies. I'm not sure if you knew this. I didn't um, know but when, when Robert Downey Jr. was taking on the role, they said, we need you to go talk to this man called Elon Musk because he's essentially the real life Iron Man. At the time, he was still trying to get SpaceX getting their first Falcon rocket up. Tesla hadn't yet built its car. This is, remember, this is old Elon Musk when he didn't have hair and he was a lot more lovable and less divisive and everybody loved him. And apparently, Robbie Down Jr. spent some time with him. He's like, this is exactly who my character is, right? And he just started emulating Elon Musk. In fact, Elon was even in the second movie uh, briefly had a little guest appearance as, as almost like a like a little thank you for uh, giving us the character of you. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I so did not know that this fight won't happen because okay. But let's you know talk why? hypotheticals. Let's talk. You know why? Why? Why won't it happen? If one of them dies, it'll be terrible for the company's stock. However. <laughs> <laughs> They're both in a position that they can do yeah. this. Like Mark yeah. Zuckerberg has controlling interest in Facebook or Meta. And Elon just seems to do whatever the hell he wants to do. The only place you're going to be able to watch this is on Twitter. That'll be one of his conditions or something like that. And Mark will refuse. Um, but <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be? Oh, but is that it? Maybe this is the point. So there's no financial benefit. You have this to have Twitter blue. <laughs> this is what Dana White called out. He said that yeah. there's no financial benefit for these two guys. They would just pick a charity and the winner, like, you know, the winner gets to give $500 million or whatever, or $300 million to a charity of their Chump choice. Chump change, yeah. Yeah, because it, like they don't need the money. Mm. But, but imagine if Elon used this as a, like some negotiating power with the UFC. Maybe like UFC starts distributing their content as like on Twitter through Twitter. That'd be Maybe I don't like that. I could see that as a as a reason to do it to 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 forge some sort of relationship with the UFC because we do know Elon wants to get more video hosting on Twitter. He knows that's the 
He knows that's the play. That's where the money is. That's how YouTube yeah. makes a lot of money. Twitch makes a lot of mm-hmm. money. You know, allowing people. Yeah, he's already started allowing people to put subscriptions through Twitter, and he's obviously taking a clip of that income. And so, you know, these video platforms are making money. So maybe that's it. If he's like got the UFC as a draw card, maybe other he's thinking other creators will come to the platform because people are now watching things on Twitter of value. And so creators bring their content to Twitter and maybe that's how he, he, you know, he gives Twitter a kickstart. What do you think? I would, I, I would, I would, I would right resub now. my Twitter blue. I would resub my Twitter blue just to see that, to be honest, if, if that was the only reason to get it again was to watch that fight, I would do it, but yeah. it would be, it would be, you know what? It sounds terrible. It would be funny. If Mark killed Elon during this fight <laughs> <laughs> by accident, but it, yeah, it just yeah. be like it's the most poetic way for this story to end. <laughs> you know, it's like, Daddy, Daddy, tell me about this man who made your car and got us on Mars. Well, he was killed by this other robot who started this company called Facebook. You know, it's just like I can just see it there, like Mark just standing there with his arms in the air and Elon's dead on the ground. I love Elon. I don't want him to die, but it would be like it'd be the funniest way for him to end would be in this goddamn fight. And it's actually really funny because I think I'm not a like I'm not a diehard Elon fan. I think he has his problems, but I think he is a net positive in the world. I think controversial statement. How dare you say that? You know, there's I, a lot I, of people I, who don't think he's a net positive. <laughs> I hear it on uh, you know, podcasts I listen to all the time. Yeah, I think he's a net positive. Like, I think he's divisive. I also agree he's a net positive. He's done more good for the world. Certainly, he's done bad. I'm not sure. Like, what, 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 what the arguments against him? We should have a, should be a different podcast. But the arguments against him, I think, are sort of weakish and don't really come anywhere close to the good things that he's brought about. And I don't think those classic arguments of he didn't do it, his engineers did it, hold no hold they they hold no water at all. Uh, you could say that about any any company that you know the leader doesn't do it, but the leader does deserve some credit because without them, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and he uh, he is vital to the success of his companies. He He's very intertwined Tesla, with them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. If he didn't run Tesla, it would have died already. He yes. solves problems in in such a way that's incredible. And again, like SpaceX would be dead if he wasn't the lead rocket designer to start with. Tesla yes, and people will argue did. that he wasn't, but he was. He was the lead engineer of the damn company. Yeah, lead rocket designer. I don't know necessarily um, the engineering side of things, and I'm not sure what the division line between rocket designer and engineer is, but he definitely played a huge part in that. <laughs> he just drew the picture and said, make that. That's rocket design. <laughs> Put a Tesla stripe on it. Died. We yep. like, we know that. Tesla would have died if during the mm-hmm. Model 3 ramp up, he wasn't sleeping in the factory. And walking mm-hmm. around and having like effect, not micromanaging, but assisting every team with his problem solving ability. So, yeah. And I then if people that- want to talk about Twitter, Twitter is a completely different story, which we can talk about someday. But that is just yeah. a completely I was different making, kettle of fish. I was making a point, which I'll come back to. We've got Elon, yeah. net positive, Zuckerberg. Lizard. I just, you know. I don't know that I could say he's a net positive. I feel like he's a net negative. I don't I feel think like the Facebook... effect of Facebook has made on the internet and society is definitely probably a net negative. And I think he yeah, knows that I, too. And I think a lot I, of people know that. Yeah, I don't. Like, Social none media. of the products he makes 
are having a net positive on the world, I don't feel like. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind yeah. of like good versus evil, kind of, not really, but kind of. I do you think, think like Lord of the Rings, it's good versus evil. It's, yeah. No, I, I like, I'm not going to call Elon good, uh, but I'm not going to call him. I'm definitely not going to call him evil. He's not. Anyway, let's, let's move I mean, on. I, like, I, some people disagree with me. Yeah, net positive versus net negative, right? And mm. they're not that far away from each other, potentially. Mm. Uh, I do think Zuckerberg would kill Elon, not, and not literally, but figuratively. I just like, yeah, Zuckerberg trains. He is, he's on this. I think he think, will win and he will win easily. I just don't think that Elon's brain and his physical physique <laughs> is going to help him in this fight. He's got a bit of weight. He's got a bit of weight on him. There is a, there is a reason they have different weight classes in these things, right? And and he's he's already talked about previously. He 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 was demonstrating to a friend who was a fighter. He's like, let me show you why we have different weight classes. And he just laid down on top of them, and they couldn't they couldn't beat him. <laughs> so that's his plan. His whole plan is just lay down on top of Mark Zuckerberg. God, that would be a funny image, wouldn't it? It'd be almost be as funny as the uh, yeah. I know. He's just like literally just laying on top of Mark. <laughs> Mark's like ah. I can't get up anymore. Oh, you're right. I would pay hundred US dollars to watch this match. It'd be hilarious. If this fight was going to go ahead, it would have to be in a year's time, so that Elon could <laughs> he train. He can. He can have a rocky, a rocky, uh, like build up rocky sequence, montage. like out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. He's have a rocky montage of his own. It's the eye of the tiger. So I asked GTP GPT four who who it thought would win. In a fight oh, between God. Musk and Zuckerberg, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it wouldn't give me a prediction. It did say, mm-hmm. uh, based on the information available, so uh, physical size. Musk is reported to be six foot one and has a physical size advantage over Zuckerberg, who is five foot seven. So he's taller and he's he's bulkier. Mm. Training experience, though, Zuckerberg has been training mixed martial arts and has won tournaments in jujitsu. Musk, on the other hand, has joked about his lack of exercise and training, but he has also mentioned getting into street <laughs> fights when he was growing up in South Africa. So if he was allowed to use a knife, <laughs> Musk might be okay. <laughs> Thing is, I'll, t- I'll take those street smarts and real-world experience over Mark Zuckerberg's little, you know, sterile camps where people just freak out when they see his Mark Zuckerberg. You know, if I saw if I saw Mark Zuckerberg coming at me, I would be more scared than if someone tried to fight me on the street. Just <laughs> wouldn't you? The guys, I'd be like, oh god, here we go. <laughs> I'm gonna get murdered here. <laughs> so, in terms of fitness and endurance, Zuckerberg's yeah. fitness regime reportedly includes high endurance activities, and he has a lean body type, which might give him an advantage in terms of agility and endurance. Uh, Musk is believed to favor strength training, which could potentially provide him with more power. Uh, and so age, yeah. Zuckerberg's only 39, so he's my age, and Musk is 51. I I just don't see Elon having a chance in that fight. Thing is, thing is, like Musk, you know, there's like there's this thing called the dad bod that you unlock when you have a kid, and Musk has got a lot of kids, and he is just like <laughs> he's got the ultimate dad bod. Um, just like dad's strength. I reckon he'd just take a swing at Zuckerberg and just punch him out <laughs> the first try. You know, Mark's going to do this like crazy fancy robotic move where he spins around 50 times and then it's like, Pow! straight in the kisser. You know, it's Mark just over. Is, he seems too utilitarian. Uh, utilitarian. Mm-hmm. U- utilitarian. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. I got the word out eventually. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we spent a lot of time on that. If you're listening and uh, yeah, please tell us what you think. I, I would really interested to see if anybody thinks Elon could win this fight. And I'd also love to hear other people's opinions of why Elon would be interested in this fight. He doesn't need the money. So what's the benefit here aside from a media stunt? And if you're on Spotify, there's going to be a poll attached to this episode about who's going to win. And I'm going to make a bet based on that poll. I'll put money down on this based on what you guys reckon. Well, Wisdom of the crowd. I, can we do a poll? Like, can we do more than one poll? If we did one poll of who thinks this fight will go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it does go ahead, who will win? It's not going to go ahead. I say it's not going to happen. There's no uh, way. It, yeah. It's it like... If it was to go ahead, it needs time. It would have to be. This Elon is needs super late stage corporatism in the US where company CEOs are fighting each other in the Vegas octagon. <laughs> like the stock price is doing that badly. We've got to drop up support. Anyway, let's move on. We've talked way too much about this fight on a tech huddle podcast. Uh, so what's up next? We're talking about the submarine that disappeared. This is still in the news. This is very tragic. Unfortunately, there's been a bit of loss of life here. This is worth talking about. This was on every single level completely avoidable. There is absolutely nothing here that is a unforeseen or we didn't see coming. This is something that was just goddamn dumb and it's 100% that CEO's fault. And if you don't know much of the situation and you think I'm being unkind here, what you're going to hear next is this going to infuriate you. This man just absolutely played with people's lives and didn't care about any of it. And he knew it. The CEO of OceanGate was implored by industry experts, a panel of industry experts to get independent certification of the submarine to ensure its safety and that it adhered to sound engineering principles. They wrote him, like they called him, they wrote him letters and He was so adamant that they were trying to stifle his innovation and ignored everything because it's not mandatory. And so he ignored everything and Mm. went ahead with it anyway. And was it five people were lost on that submarine? Including himself, yeah. Including the CEO. I will give him kudos for putting his money where his mouth, his mouth where his money is, his money where his mouth is, he he went in the sub. So he obviously thought it was safe. I just can't believe that anybody else after seeing that would go, oh yeah, I'm going to get in a submarine and risk my life on something that has not been verified by a third party. This is not, it's like, you can't drive a car that hasn't been verified by a third party. Why would you, at least if a car crashes, you'll probably survive if you're you're doing less than 100. In a submarine, Mm. thousands of feet under the ocean, that thing fails. You're dead. You're dead. And you're lucky if you you die in in the way we believe they died, which is an implosion, right? Uh, Essentially, there's, there's this submarine that was going down there. It was made from... Uh, the same material that we use on aircraft, carbon fiber, composites. It was mixed in with other materials. It was hand tightened shut once you were inside of it. It was only openable from the exterior. 
It had no system to signal that there was an emergency. It had no signaling sort of, hey, we're here positioning system. It was communicating with the surface via radio, which is not uncommon. It had no tether to the vehicle above it, the mothership, which is not uncommon. But it was controlled with a $25 Logitech video game controller with known connectivity issues. It had touchscreen backup controls at the back of the sub. You had to take your shoes off and sit all together on a padded mat on the interior. And the handles you held onto were found at the local hardware store. In fact, all of the parts were found off the shelf and used in that submarine, including the window in order to see out of it, which was only rated to 1,300 meters depth. And the Titanic is sits at 4,000 meters, three to 4,000 meters, where they would travel down to regularly. So if I told you that you were traveling down there, the exterior shell, by the way, was purchased cheaply because it had reached a shelf life where it was no longer suitable for other industry uses, such as being on an aircraft. It was (laughs) cobbled together and that the window at the front of it, where you look out of it, is not actually rated to go down to the depths that it was you were going down to. And by the way, he had the option to get a window that was rated down to that level, but he didn't want to pay the price for it. To be manufactured. So the it was a reported the a ticket was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Did we yeah. do a summary? So for mm-hmm. those who don't know, basically, yeah, an American tourism company that built a submarine for mm-hmm. doing trips down to observe the Titanic, or this is mm-hmm. specifically this expedition was to go and observe the Titanic. And so on the eighteenth of June, the submarine set off. And 400 nautical miles off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, uh, an hour and 45 minutes into its dive, they lost communication with it. Not for the first time, I got to say. This is not the first time they've lost communications with the submarine for hours at a time. And it's expected that it imploded. So it just wasn't structurally sound for the depth that it was going down to. And so as you just mentioned... It was only rated to a thousand meters or what thirteen hundred meters, and the Titanic mm-hmm. is sitting at a depth of four thousand meters. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, the Titan submersible was uh, rated to reach four thousand meters, but we know that the glass on the front uh, was only rated was to not. actually thirteen hundred meters, and so mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't really rated to four thousand meters. Is what we're trying it to say, really. as and- evidenced by the fact that it imploded. And it wasn't verified by any third parties. So they just built it and they just decided that it was safe without anybody reviewing it. And, you know, there was actually a whistleblower within the company who came out and said, hey, this thing is not safe to be used. Um, And he was fired and then sued by the CEO of the company. This is this is a man also who, who, by the way, came out in an interview. It's interesting looking back at the footage because you see that the warning signs were there and someone else, yeah. like some body, regulatory body, of which I guess there is none for this industry, should have come out and actually put a stop to it. To it they can't. It's difficult because they were operating in international waters as well. Can yeah, you really stop what they, they do, do out there? Yeah, exactly. But he, he came out and said in an interview, I, I, I was told that I need to, I'm going to put on an American accent here, I apologize. I was told that I should hire all these like ex-submariner guys, these people who've been in submarines, but I don't want to hire these 50-year-old white people. I want to hire like 20-year-olds, people who are passionate about the industry. He didn't want to hire people with years of experience of actually working in a submersible, in a submersible. Yeah. He wanted to hire the young, 
people who didn't know anything and they approve of buying parts from your local hardware store for this death trap of a machine, which it was an absolute death trap. It was a joke of a machine. So I think not to dwell on this topic for too long, it's interesting news and uh, we recommend doing, doing your own reading. I think mm-hmm. the two things I take from this is one, it's a tragic loss of life that didn't need to happen. Including that of a 19-year-old, unfortunately. Yeah, like five people. It's, that's tragic. It's also tragic because this is actually a really interesting industry that, that could have taken off. And this event will mm. put a big damper on this industry, this kind of deep sea tourism submarine for a long time because it's, it's not cheap. It takes a lot of development. And now the general sentiment, I feel like this is getting a lot of media attention. So the general sentiment of the world will now be, or the general populace. Submersibles are unsafe, yeah. As submersibles are unsafe. And so he's done, the CEO in his carelessness has, you know, worst of all, unnecessarily risked human life. And as and a secondary, taken it. Yeah. potentially destroyed, destroyed the image of his industry. industry. Yeah. Yeah. And the livelihood of everybody who worked at the company. Yeah. yeah the, the, the poor families of the victims of this accident. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. One, one of which I just want to say is that the, also the, I just want to stress just like how safe when you do these things properly, just how safe the general engineering principles are. They're, they're, this is an industry with 35 years without incident, without any sort of incident that has happened like this. And it's only happened because of something so reckless, so like blatantly, willfully reckless happening. If you actually follow sound engineering principles and you actually have reviews and you actually go slowly and consider what you're doing and ensure that your parts have safety systems and fallback measures and what do we do when this happens? What do we do when that happens? And, you know, like the, the ultimate thing, what do we do when something happens is just to put a, a tether from to the, to, the, to the mothership so you can just winch it back up, right? It it's, can be safe. Engineering can be very safe when you take your time and you know what you're doing and you take, you know, you, you, you take the care. But the second you stop, man, you are just like you are putting that ticking time bomb on whatever you're doing for this to actually blow up in your face. And that can be applied to the work that, that we do as well, frankly, every day as software engineers. The second you stop doing these good practices, you are just inviting a disaster, some sort of unforeseen moment into your life. But the systems we work on don't have anybody's lives at stake. And so we can be a little bit reckless if we, if we need to be. I agree. But so, like, so, some people do. Some people do work on so- like mission critical software that does end up affecting people, um, and and on top of that, like it's even just for us, it's a good point, right? If you go, if you go slow, you're going to do it correctly. If you go fast, you're going to have a production crash, and you're going to lose your boss money, and he's going to fire you, and you're going to ruin a bunch of people's days because they can't use your software, right? Yeah, at the very minimum. I know that might sound, I, I completely agree with what you're probably thinking at the moment if you're listening to this, which is how the hell are those two things connected. But come on, it's an engineering story. Take something away from it. <laughs> I was, the thing that I take away from this is, this would be like if Elon put people on the first launch of the Starship that blew up. <laughs> yeah. Sure, getting into space is harder, but it's, it is an engineering vehicle that is putting people's lives at stake. They should have tested that thing without people in it a bunch of times before actually putting people in it and going underwater. What this company should have been doing, and if I was running it, and if Elon was running it, I'm sure if you were running it, 
let's make it so this thing can be steered remotely into a bunch of demonstration missions down to that thing exactly. down to the titanic first before putting anybody into it yeah i would only put someone into it if i was absolutely certain that it was not going to explode or implode in this case and we can also take away you know the theory at the start was that they were running out of air which is a horrible way to go in a submersible we can take some solace in the fact that an implosion would have been instant and they would not have known for a fact that it had, it had in fact happened. The implosion would have happened in 40 milliseconds. Unfortunately, there is the theory coming out there um, from James Cameron, in fact, who did who is involved very heavily in this industry with his own submersible. And when he went down to the Titanic, that they may have actually known there was an issue with the vehicle uh, and they would have been trying to return to the surface. Um, the thing may have actually sounded the alarm that there was something going wrong. And it was in the process of returning to the surface that the implosion did, in fact, happen. So, oh, brutal. Yes, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. Let's move on had... to a happier yeah. topic. I, think. I don't know if we actually should include that. It's a bit, uh, maybe we it just. It seems include... to be what everyone talks about. Well, the, the other interesting part is just the absolute meme storm that came out of this yeah. when they thought people were five people were dying at the bottom of the ocean. Just the, 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 you know, the clubhouse on Twitter that was going on and on the internet, people were just cracking jokes everywhere about this sort of thing which i think also the other lesson we can take about away from this is that everybody will never miss an opportunity to laugh at a rich person's misfortune yeah that's so true <laughs> right <laughs> and yet they also simultaneously want to be rich let's move on to a happier topic i agree i'm not even sure if this one should go in there to be frank with you maybe let's we talk about figma the summary yeah let's talk about mm. something a little bit more tech related Let's talk about Figma Dev Mode. Yeah. What is Figma Dev Mode? So this actually brings us into our main topic for this week. So Figma Dev Mode is a new set of tools in Figma to get your designs to code faster. So we've got what is Figma? Uh, so for those of you who don't know what Figma is, it's a U, it's it's a vector design tool that designers use for designing uh, websites and mobile apps. So it's a design yeah, tool yeah. specifically designed for building applications and websites. Yep. And, and just uh, to be clear, Figma is an amazing tool. We all love it. It's yeah. unfortunately now owned by Adobe, but we're going we're gonna to look past that for now. Yeah, it's um, still good. And it sound, Adobe hasn't made it crap yet. So Yes, it's going to be part of the creative suite soon, people. We all know it. Uh, but uh, uh, dev mode is essentially just adding new powers for developers to export things straight from Figma into the applications. Yeah, that's right. So they've they've made uh, it's it's a suite of tools. One of them is better mm -hmm. inspection tools, so it shows you better spacing and margins. And you know, your Figma's had the ability to copy CSS out directly, but it hasn't been. It's very isolated, right? It'll give you the CSS for mm -hmm. a specific component. And I, my understanding is it now has a better understanding of the entire context and so it can give you better export of CSS. Uh, but it also allows you to export. So you can, there's like third-party plugins by the look of it as well, where you can export Figma designs that are done well directly as mm -hmm. React code uh, as well as CSS and also, I've seen a plugin where you can export Flutter widgets directly from the tool. So I haven't had a chance to investigate this yet, but I wanted to talk about it this week because it is uh, it is big news. If it's if it does what it claims to do, the potential of speeding up your workflow from go, to go from designs to code 
is yeah. a big win. I'm going to take completely the pessimistic view here because I, you, you know, I uh, people who don't know, I, I'm a, I'm a long time web developer. Web developer has been my primary thing for nine years, I think. Now I've done a lot of stuff from Dreamweaver to, you know, Bootstrap back when that was a thing. I miss Bootstrap. Um, <laughs> yeah, neither do I. Uh, going in, into all these different frameworks and now into React, and I at, at Every time I've heard of one of these code generation export tools, they promise the world and they end up just being unsuitable for production level applications that at least I work on. Um, if it's if it's like a small, I, you know, every time, in fact, we don't, I don't even have a need for CSX export at the moment because a, a lot of the projects I'm working in are, are in Tailwind and to do a CSS level export is just going to be not compatible um and, and and other jobs that i worked at you know where where we do actually have big design teams with design tokens etc it can be useful in order to just speed up their task and keep us both uh, 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 consistent just based on like ui libraries that we get working between our side and their side and we keep them matched and consistent but even even then on top of that like the code generation tools they give us aren't going to fit in with the code we're actually writing for these applications um, you know, like I, I can give a specific example at Clipsham, for example, none of the code generation tool exports would have been suitable for any of the work that we were doing there, which was very complex interactions. And I, I know that you, I know that you might be saying, well, that's just one case and that doesn't rule out no code solutions altogether. That in my general opinion, they're garbage. Yeah, and this really leads us into our uh, into our topic this week. Which is that you love them. <laughs> I like tools that help me solve problems, but I like yeah. writing code as well. Like I really enjoy solving problems. What I don't mm. enjoy is solving the same problems over and over again. Mm. And so this is where we definitely contrast because you're pr- like you are definitely uh, not built here in a little bit in that you like yeah. to you like to write all your code you like to do everything from scratch you like to do it I'm all I'm coming manually. around I, I used Firebase for a project yesterday instead of writing my own authentication you'd be very proud of me I, I am proud of you uh, <laughs> I used to be like that and I've just gotten sick of doing the same things over and over again and so yeah. now I'm firmly of the opinion that I want to solve interesting new problems if I can, instead of reinventing the wheel. And so mm. there are a lot of really good, like like not no code, but low code solutions. And so mm. they're exactly what they sound like. A no code solution means that you can have no technical knowledge and you could build an application, a website. And there's some really good tools out there. Uh, Natty, my wife, has been learning uh, Webflow as part of her design UX course. And mm-hmm. Webflow is an amazing tool for building static websites, blogs, you know, marketing websites, anything that needs very good uh, SEO and that you want to be able to have non-technical people update quickly. And I would consider doing that. I'm not a great designer. Uh, I I'm not... I have done some web development. I'm quite good with the technical aspects, but I'm not great with CSS. Although that's mm-hmm. less of a barrier now because of ChatGTP. ChatGTP knows CSS really well, and so uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll, and we'll get back to that. 
But I would definitely yeah. consider using Webflow for, for many cases, especially if I was dealing with a small business that wanted to build a website that they could then maintain themselves. I would definitely, I would, I would honestly get somebody to build it in Webflow and then give them a quick crash course on how they could edit fields and update things because it's not a fun problem for me to solve. I don't want to be building websites for people. I'm really happy to empower a small business to be able to manage their own website. And this is where I think these no code tools really shine. On the other end, there's these, like there's full application building soft, no code tools like bubble. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a guy I used to work with uh, like a number of years ago, he has built a business around teaching people how to build complex applications with bubble. And I'm dubious about that. And so what do you reckon? Like, are we, you know, is this Figma dev mode the next step in replacing us as developers? <laughs> no, um, but I, I will take the inspection tools and everything else they've made to make it easier for me to get values out of Figma. Uh, viewer level access on Figma has always been terrible. And as a developer, I've always needed um, edit access just to even be able to get some of the values I need. Number yeah. one, um, if I'm if I'm if I'm implementing a UI library that a design a designer or design team has put together, getting those tokens out is much much more appreciated. Any sort of code export tools from Figma, and I've seen people try them. I've actually even had de- uh, designers send me React files saying, "Here, I made the had the app for you. I exported it from Figma." I was just like, buddy, this ain't going to work. Uh, i got to do this all myself, right? Everything else they've released so far, maybe maybe except for things like variables, which are going to help with uh, prototyping, et cetera. I really, I just kind of don't care about as, as, a, as a senior developer and I'll usually just ignore. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be other, other experienced web people who are going to agree with me, which is that although, although Figma's CSS export is better than I expected it to be, it's irrelevant to compared to like what I could actually write and make work properly as a as a senior engineer who's been doing this for a really long time and really understands the space. Having said that, also other tools that help you with CSS, uh, they help with basic level stuff. The CSS they generate is not very good. CSS is a beast. It's one hell of a beast, and you really gotta have a lot of experience with it to create something. Good. And that's why frameworks like Tailwind exist, right? And so for those- Yeah, and they do a really good job of taking yeah. something complicated, of making it simpler. But it's also simple to screw up in Tailwind and do something wrong because you heard the best way to position a div vertically is still to use you know, line height or position absolute and not something like flex. Now, if you heard me say flex and you thought, I would never use flex, you haven't tried flex. Flex is actually... the yeah, Flex is the right way to go. Go with Flex. Flex is awesome. Once you understand Flex and exactly how it works, it's one hell of a powerful tool. It does have one little drawback, which we won't get into. I'll let you discover that for yourself. But it, it you know, most websites I build, everything is a Flex. Everything is a Flex box. It's aligning itself. It's justifying its, its children. There is no craziness going on. You don't need floats anymore. You don't need line heights anymore. You occasionally need a position absolute for something that you're doing to fit in with the design. But a code generation export tool is not going to understand that well enough to give me something that I can abstract out into components and proper CSS. It's just not. I I don't know if that's the case now. Honestly, though, uh, and this is a real problem. Well, it's it's not a real problem. You're working fast. You need to get designs done. 
as long as it looks good enough as a programmer, I can work out how it should scale. I can yep. work out because there's a lot of work. It can spend, you can spend a lot of time in a design file, getting all of the layout constraints and get everything to scale properly and like building individual components and using those components throughout the library. It's, it's a big job. And a lot of designers don't have time for that. And I think that's where our colleagues at work, they, they, they are rushing through these designs because they need to then move on to the next designs. And they know us as programmers can our deadlines are impossible. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, that's not necessarily that they're not capable of doing it. It's more that they haven't had the time to do that. So I have worked with some designers who aren't capable of doing it. And I've worked with some designers oh, who are capable. Yeah, yeah, who are capable, but that aren't given the time. But it renders these tools, it renders these tools useless because those at code export tools rely on a proper design system, a proper color scheme system, you know, proper abstraction of variables. And proper, like not properly designed, but comprehensively designed components in your design library. In you know, it, like so, design library being larger Lego bricks. You know, taking lots of small things, building them into you know components that are potentially reusable throughout the app. And if that's done well, I think the code export tools can do a reasonable job. It's, but it's a hypothetical scenario that I've never been in. So to, to give an example. Nah, you're wrong, mate. Pros don't use this sort of stuff. Pros uh, can just look at a design file and just know exactly what they need to build and build out all the uh, the UI components from scratch. Yeah, not all of us. They don't, they don't even need the values. Not all of us are that good <laughs> at design. But Which is I, true. But I, I just want to say, I want to know who this feature is for from Figma's end. Why did Figma make this? I get the inspection tools. Great. Give me the inspection tools. Why did they make a code generation export thing? It's because it was just the trendy thing to do. They thought they had to. Who were they thinking of when they said code generation export tools? I think eventually this tool could get there. And you've, something's got to be bad before it gets good. And I suppose these tools have been bad for some time. Or maybe we just haven't come across you know, a good one yet, or we haven't worked in an environment where it could be good. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Even the latest AIs from ChatGPT4 cannot create code well enough to understand the true structure of an app. You, you don't believe these things you see on Twitter where they say, look at this, you know, ChatGPT command line tool. It wrote this entire app for me from scratch and all I gave it was a prompt. We can do anything you want. You can make $4 million an hour. You can't. The code it's writing is questionable at best. It's just not up to the level of a human mind sitting there, sitting down and saying, I'm going to write this app who knows what they're doing and gets it done. It's just not. For a design tool to be able to do that, to incorporate design into that as well, long time away. The best it could do is have a tab system. I question yeah. I question long time. I, you can question that, but the best thing we can get now is like a tab system where you click a button, it'll change the tab, and then maybe you got that. I'm, I'd bet money on that. I don't think you can get better than that with Figma. I don't think you'll get better than that for a while. Not until like the next best AI is out and Adobe integrates it. I think, I don't know. What I'm interested in here is you're right, the market. So for example, these types of tools can be great for early stage prototyping. So if you wanted to just get something built and you've got really good design files, you could probably export all the code, mm. dump it in and publish something quite quickly. Then the problem- Then you're that, stuck with it. You're well, stuck with it. And 
it's only you're only stuck with it if your product lives long enough for you to be stuck. With. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's it's true. Like you might abandon the product. So if you're just trying to the solution here is idea, just to never follow through. Yeah. <laughs> some some products aren't haven't got legs. You might build something quickly and realize that it was a terrible idea and nobody wants it, right? And you might abandon it, and never touch the code again. And you really want to get to that point of validation as fast as you can. But my my look, point here, my point, just yeah. stick with me. My point okay. here is when you're validating a product, you're probably not going to put the amount of time into the design files for them to be good enough for you to export as code. You probably don't have design files, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's the point. You're... Yeah, you're probably using a template. or so. It And yeah. once you've exported them, as soon as they're out of the design system and into your code, you can't export them from the design system anymore because you've written code. You've modified them, you've changed them. You've, and so it's really great for that first pass, but as soon as they make it mm. into your source code and you modify them, you can't re-export them anymore. And so- I think, you know, I think it's gonna be great for designers who will sell a website to somebody and they just wanna export their entire design file as a website and not even get involved with the programmer. They could probably get away with that. It's gonna be ghetto. That thing, that website will have issues, I promise you. But the, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just still. And so, so one concrete use case of this could be like Figma export to Webflow. I could see that because there's no code happening and there's not a lot of complex logic. So you could do some really nice design files, really quickly get it all. And without having to relearn. So at the moment, as a designer, you need to learn how to use Figma. And then you need to learn how to use Webflow. If but you then could... you also need to like, how, how is this thing going to handle responsibly on every screen size? That's my first question. But Figma um, can do that. You can do that with uh, with Figma. You can do responsive. Oh, designs. you can create super basic, you know, like bootstrappy style. I start small and go big stuff, sort of stuff, right? But it's not going to be, it's not going to be as good as what the big guys do. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I no, it's not going to be as good. But it doesn't need to be as good. It just needs to be good enough. It needs to be perfect. Everything you touch must be perfect every time. Welcome to my life. <laughs> it cannot go out until it is perfectly polished. So I, I, I definitely see some value in this for some people. Mm. I just don't know if that market's as big as Figma potentially sees it as. Because it, like as I said, if you're rushing to get a product out, you're probably like half-assing the designs and then hacking together some code if you've got that capability. And then as soon as you've exported the designs once, then it's in your code base and you can't export them anymore. Uh, so let's, let's, let's take a step back for a second. And I can promise you one thing. I can promise you one thing. Just before the next topic, designers yeah. are going to love this feature. Developers are going to hate it. I don't know. I promise you that. I, I, I'm hopeful. I promise you that. Web like developers are going to get given like the most ghetto file from their design team and the design team is going to tell the sprint manager it's done and they just need to integrate it and the developer is going to have a horrible time but honestly i would be happy i wouldn't mind if i didn't have to solve crappy ui problems i would be happy solving interesting engineering problems and so just having... you shouldn't be doing those UIs, right? If you, if you don't like this sort of work, then you shouldn't be doing those sort of UIs. And also the more you do them, like if you actually do this yourself, you're going to skill up. If you just keep yeah. dumping Figma designs in there, you're never going to skill up. If you actually take the time to learn what how align self and justify self actually does, which like 99% developers don't know what that is. 
then you'll have a good time in the future because you'll have a really great, a really great experience with flex. You know, it's <laughs> how 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 valuable is that skill? I I don't think. Well, it depends you're... if you, if you're good at what your job is. So you can actually prove that you get this stuff done. You can make big cash money, right? It's valuable. But also, you now. can work on your own side projects. Oh, I don't think I. You know, okay. Well, let's have this conversation now. Let's have this conversation. Which is... <laughs> let's do this. We're both talking about this now. Let's get onto it now. I lost sleep when I saw ChatGPT4 writing code. Yeah, me too. I legitimately was worried. I actually had this like feeling in my like chest where I'm like, my job is gone in a year or two. What the hell am I going to do? Right, I'm going to yeah. learn baking or something like that. Last I always wanted to be a baker. So. <laughs> Last Christmas, yeah. I took I took the Christmas holidays off to spend with Kyle, and like during that time, I was like, I was down. I was I had an mm-hmm. existential crisis around what am I going to do? Like I've done lots of jobs. I you know I've got lots of skills that I can do, mm. but I enjoy what I do. I like working on solving problems and writing code. Yeah. Like I really enjoy it. And mm-hmm. man, I, I love code. Yeah. really struggled to like, well, I, I didn't, I didn't touch a computer for like the entire six weeks because I didn't know what I was going to do yeah. and whether or not I should be doing this anymore or whether I should be upskilling and carpentry. Carpentry I was or... legitimately, I was legitimately considering what other careers am I going to take? Like, what is the next job? And you know what? I, I don't know about you. I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel that way right now, but I haven't. <laughs> I feel comfortable. That's why you're doing carpentry lately. That's why you're working on your house because you're getting ready to switch over. <laughs> I feel comfortable that I will have work for at least the next five years. And not be, but not because I think I can still keep writing, writing like like front end design code. I feel like there's you've still got to solve the problem. ChatGTP mm. will help you solve the a problem that you have decided that you need to solve. But you still need people to come up with the problem, validate the idea, talk to human beings, and get feedback. Uh, build it, ship it, iterate. I still think human beings are a really integral part of that process of we as an organization or we as a small team have this idea. How do we proceed with this idea? How do we make it great? AI has proven itself, at least for now, to be terrible at creativity because guess what? It's trained on human data from the past and there's not much creativity when you just go over human data that's been repeated a bunch of times in a file, in a data set, sorry. But some things don't need a lot of creativity. The thing is that people desire creativity, I think, like creative solutions coming out of like, you know, the, you, you, uh, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to give Apple praise. The iPhone was a creative solution in a smartphone market, right? The yeah. iPod, the iPod Nano, these were creative solutions. It might seem like looking back, they just made an MP3 player with a wheel and then made it smaller. Sure, they did, but it was very creative and their marketing was very creative. If you do... It's one of those things. Still, if I was going to if I was going to do copywriting today, I would hire someone to do the copywriting. I wouldn't use ChatGPT. That's controversial. I know a lot of people are using ChatGPT for copywriting, but it just the stuff that it produces is just not very creative. Creative, Mark. Like the words that it uses, a stat. It almost feels like it's like the 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 most like cheesy sales message you could possibly come up with do you like rugs get ready to be rugged off your feet you know it's just like terrible whereas i I look at the copywriters i used to work with and they made some really good copy i was just like damn this is why you had this job and not me (laughs) if you had the money to be and chat gdp is an excellent tool for a copywriter if you had the money to Mm. pay a copywriter 
and also give them access to ChatGTP. I think that's the winning combination. Me personally, though, I mm. I use ChatGTP, but I give it a lot of info. I don't ask yeah. it to write it for me. I give it mm-hmm. bullet point and summary, and I give it a tone of voice and what I want out of it. And in that mm. case, all it's doing is taking, it's wording it. It's taking all of mm-hmm. the ideas that I've given it and then rewording it. And then I iterate on it. And so yeah. I end up having a conversation. And I think in that way, it's it's a great tool. So I want to take a step back though. I don't think that I do, sorry, I do think that UI, building UIs has a lifetime that's shorter. I think in the next five years, a lot of building like what goes on the screen, like, you know, the buttons and the scroll views and the text and everything, I do think that will be done almost entirely through a combination of Figma and code export that syncs. I, I do. I disagree. I, I disagree. At least and you in, yeah. sorry, at least in small to medium companies. Okay. Or I can, for, I, for there's products. always going to be garbage level companies that are just churning out this stuff with AI all the time. I'm just going to call them, I'm just going to call them garbage level companies. They are just churning out like the lowest effort thing as fast as humanly possible, charging a client enormous figures. They're going to love tools like that, like AI generation, Figma tools, and then AI, Figma export tools. This is their dream come true. For people, you know, I'm, I'm trying to launch another side business at the moment, uh, which we'll be talking about in a future podcast, hopefully. Very exciting. And I've just gotten the, 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 you know, the production level marketing page together, and I think it looks absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. There is no way... You could have, I I don't have the skills in Figma, number one. I don't think I could have described an AI what I wanted, number two. Number three is that like even even creating it to that level is an iterative process of actually getting it to a level where I'm like, this could be kind of cool and then experimenting with it a little bit. And you can't sit there and tell me that, yeah, you could have done that prompting the AI. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because personally, I have this thing where I want to go to, if I see a product and it's very polished, visually i know it doesn't actually matter and this is a terrible entrepreneurial lesson which is that people will buy something for its usage not for the way it looks but if i see something and i'm paywalling it and i need to sell it i think having that combination of utilitarianism like it does the job better than anybody else it does things that other people don't do you want it also it's beautiful could actually help in some cases. It's not going to help. And I've actually learned this lesson before, a very expensive lesson, which is don't overpolish it. But a certain level either of way, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you could have done this with AI. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly. See, it does. I do. I think, yeah. so in my case, you are a very talented front-end web developer. Uh, yep, you're keep very, going, keep you're, going. You're very uh-huh. good at <laughs> writing copy. Yeah, you've done this yep. a lot. You've shipped a lot of products. And for you... It doesn't cost you anything but your time and you're very quick at it. Mm. For me, I I am great at building applications and building mobile apps. Uh, I'm good at that. I'm not great at building websites. I can do it, but I'm a lot slower. I don't have that capacity. And it's not honestly not something that I super enjoy. I enjoy building features. I enjoy solving problems. 
building a marketing mm. website is kind of is boring for me. I am confident it's now not yeah. that if, if Figma had like a Figma to Webflow export tool, I am confident that Natty, my wife, who is studying UI and UX design, could design it in Figma, use ChatDDP to generate copy based on her input. She's not just going to say, give me the copy for a website. You know, she's going to explain what she wants to say, list out the bullet mm -hmm. points, get copy, put that into the Figma designs, export the Figma designs into Webflow and publish the site all on her own without me having to write a line of code, which frees yep. me up to be writing the actual application code, which is going to allow us to validate the idea. And so we can work in parallel where Natty can produce an entire website using a combination of these no code, uh, code generation and AI and get the mm -hmm. marketing website up so we can start collecting registrations, mm -hmm. start validating the idea, showing people whilst I am in parallel, right, writing a crappy version of the app so that we can test it. The thing is, like, can, can we talk about like the the alternatives to this as well? So, if you're not going to use something like a, if like, I, personally, I don't even think for that level of validation, you should even be designing anything in Figma. I feel like you should be going on to Tailwind's website, purchasing a template, throwing your logo in there, changing the copy, basic stuff, make it one, two pages, whatever. Get that going first before even opening this Figma. I think if you if you have a business idea and the second you open Figma and you start trying to perfect the design and what it looks like, you're probably already down the losing path. Um, and, I, and, I just, and I just want to save myself here. That design I did is a one pager and it's got like two elements on it. It's nothing impressive. Oh, it yeah, was way yourself. more important to get. Yeah, it, it's it way more really important good. that I actually got it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> the one element that I have on there, the rest of it is just text and a download button. Um, but getting that getting that going, you should like just this like opening Figma and tweaking it to death is a death sentence. Making your own UI like frame like little component selection on a new product, unless you're a big company and you're totally okay with this product taking a while, is probably a death sentence to getting that early validation. And you there's no way you can build that out and the programmers build out, you know, something else and make it look like your design at the same time. It's just not possible. You're going to have to get that design ready. The programmers have to spend a lot of time getting a UI component library ready, and then they can actually put it all together and make it look right, which usually your boss isn't going to go for. If you're an experienced designer, just like us as programmers, we have a whole bunch of tools that mm. you know we, we, we can start a new project and just pull in bits of code from all of our other mm. personal projects that we've been working on and get something going quite quickly. <laughs> Most of a new projects just copy and paste for the two days, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Pulling in libraries and things that you've written in the past. Yeah. Designers also have that. <laughs> I never do that. No, I would never do that either. Yeah, never do that. Uh, I would I use the knowledge that I learned from those companies and code that I've written myself mm -hmm. in my own time or in open source libraries. I wanted to challenge okay. that perspective because for you, it's not a lot of value. But for people who don't have that technical skill, don't have the money to pay like a senior designer or a senior developer, sorry, uh, the amount of money that you would charge on a daily rate as a contractor, these tools have got a huge amount of value. So let's talk about your scenario, right? You just want to get a landing page up as quick as you can. You can buy a Webflow template uh, and throw that up. So, See, but if, if you're going, to, if you're going to that why? level... Sorry. Yeah, okay, go on. 
Okay, yeah, if you so, go into that level, if they don't know how to code and you want to get something out there, you should just go to something like Squarespace, that thing I swore I would never be a customer of on last week's episode. You should be going to that and just choosing a template. And this is pretty similar, right? You could do Squarespace or Webflow, grab a template and get a website up and running yeah. very quickly. And sure, it'll cost yeah, you a little validate. more. validate. Yeah, to validate. Yeah. So, okay, so just say you do that. For me, the holy grail of this flow would be and this would work quite well in Flutter. The way that the design system works in Flutter, you could do this. Where Natty could design, even just as wireframes, she could go in and design a bunch of like wireframe components, like pretty rough. Uh, she could throw together a few screens in, again, a very rough format for us to validate. But I could set it up to pull those components out into my Flutter source code with variables already in them and then just wrap them in some sort of provider that provides the data to it. So I don't have to touch it. I don't have to write any of that design code. I can just write the smarts. I can write the logic. It just passes events out and takes data in. And so I don't have to write that. And so that they can live in their own files that I then import in other files that he can then up. The, so then we can build something really quickly. She can be, you know, she can give me really rough designs. I pull that in. I add the logic. We ship something that we can validate. Then mm. once we get feedback, Natty can update the designs. I can potentially update the logic and we ship that. And then we can work in tandem because there's the two of us. If it's just me, I'm never going to go to Figma. I'm just going to hack it out in material design in the app as fast as possible. But I see a workflow there where you're in a small startup. You've got a designer, a product manager, and a developer, maybe. Uh and so you want those people to be able to work in tandem. The code export is getting good. And I do see that this designs, these design files, at least even if you just take it down to the building blocks, not necessarily the whole screens, but like search bars and uh, list views and, and these things that, you know, that the higher level building blocks that you want to use in the app. I see that being able to be exported and used directly from yeah. Figma. And I, I, I agree with you. You're going to be able to get exports out of Figma if it's just like it's not up to my level of quality. I know that sounds like I'm the biggest, you know, most laughable person in the podcast, but, you know, the, 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 the getting, getting UI design right and getting it implemented right is extremely complicated sort of stuff to get that perfect. And I know there's going to be developers who say that it's not and it's very simple and you just got to use X or Y or Z. It is, man. Like, it, it, it is actually really complicated how to get it perfect. How important is it to get it perfect versus it's absolutely, get it shipped yeah. and get your From idea the, validated? The business side of me, the business side of me says it's absolutely not important at all and you should make it go out looking like Windows 95. The part of me, which is a quality lover, says that it cannot possibly ship until it is perfect and you have seen it. You know, what they say is like a good design is one that you see a million times and you never get sick of. You know things like operating system design, something like something like what Apple has put together with um, uh, with their operating system macOS. Yes, there's tiny little things that niggle at me, but I see this every day, and it does not bother me. And even even in Windows 11, right, their new UI design is very beautiful. Sometimes some of the layout of the settings gets to me, which is more of an accessibility thing, and there's not really a problem per se with the design itself. But to get to that level where you can see this so many times and not tire of it. Or you can see it once for the first time and know exactly how it works and it'll appear correctly on every screen, on every display density, et cetera. That's hard. And that takes a long time to get to. And I think 
this is where so that's great it's, it's actually you know what it's it's, imma- it's immaterial to the conversation that we're having really which is that is this going to help small businesses and small creators get stuff out faster yes it is in my opinion it's going to be low quality stuff but i'm willing to be proven wrong i think that's my summation of uh, my position and our original our original argument was this is going to affect our jobs in the short <laughs> to medium to long term and it might cause some irritation if I have a designer who uses it, but it's not going to it's not going to affect my job at all. Yeah, I, so my position on this is there will be more people using low code and no code tools and AI to generate apps. They will hit their limits fairly quickly, and then they will need experienced developers and designers to come in and take them to the next level. Honestly, I think- and if your if your app has already been built with all these low code no code tools, then God help you because those experienced developers are going to have a poor time working with them in my but in that's, my, my opinion. And I, I agree. But if they're already at a point where they're making enough money to be able to then support a team, I'm fine with that. I actually think there's just going to be more jobs in the space because there'll be more people using software. There'll be more people making software and getting software validated to a point where they make money and therefore they'll yeah. be hiring people. And so- and actually. Yeah, I have to say, I think that AI in general is just, a, it's not its not—it's not a job killer. It's actually more of a job creator and job booster. I think countries that are using things like GPT-4 in their workflows are going to be much more productive than those that are not and in individual workers, et cetera. It can help you upskill. It can help you learn. It can help even solve little code issues. I did it today with a search bar that I wrote for mimetype.io. I had a bit of code I needed. I had 99% of it there. I just did not remember the implementation to how to do this part at the end. I copy and pasted it into GPT. I said, there was a comment here at this line. Can you please tell me what I need to do for this one? And it banged out the code for me in a web API, which I haven't seen in three years, four years. Yeah. Instantly. That's productivity in AI, right? That makes me more productive instead of screwing around on Google trying to figure out what this API was in MDM. And I, I do this a lot now. So I feel like now having the problem solving (laughs) skills, the domain knowledge is less important because I can get the domain knowledge really quickly out of ChatGTP. So yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's my net take on it now. I, I, and there's, so there's one more point that I kind of wanted to touch on before we finish and like we're getting, we've been going for a while now, so we'll have to wrap up soon, but I just, I wanted to get your opinion on like using low code tools in conjunction with your regular development flow. And so I'll give you an example. Do I have to set them up? <laughs> this is my this I'm really unenthusiastic about this. Do I have to set it up? So like we've got a couple of recent examples. So at a previous company I worked at, I didn't have time to build we're a small we're a small team. We you know we're we're working hard to ship features, but the product mm-hmm. manager needed some tools to be able to control Uh, emails that were getting sent out based on subscriptions. And I didn't want to write the code for that because it's not our core business. Our core business was a separate product. And Mm. so we set up, uh, I had to write a small amount of code to integrate our database with an event system in AWS. But as soon as we got into that event system in AWS, Zapier could be used to then send the information everywhere we needed it. So Zapier could send that information into uh, our emailing system. It was sending some information to Slack. And so 
So me, sorry, was this was this to send emails to the lifecycles events and users? So like after sign up, send this email. After that, send that email. Yes. That's an interesting choice to use Zapier for that one instead of going to like for one, just sending the email yourself, or two, setting up um, Mailchimp for example and having it handle that so, sort of thing. No, so we had we had um, we had a software campaign monitor. Uh, yeah. for sending the emails, but it was just getting the data out of our database based on a trigger of when events happened. And right. we wanted to send that information to multiple places. Campaign Monitor didn't have a great API and I didn't want to have to write the code. I didn't want to have to set up mm -hmm. custom serverless functions to listen to this data and send the data to multiple different places. And I didn't want to have to update it every single time the product manager changed his mind on where the data needed to go to. Uh, which happens. Which happens. And that's fine. It's okay. But I wanted to empower him to be able to solve his problems and leave me and my team uh, solving Alone. the actual <laughs> problem of, of the company. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah. We, that, that's not our core business sending these emails. Our core business was a separate product that nobody else now, had built before. And so I see you've asked me a question yes, and you've given me that example. And I feel like that example is cheating because that example is one that comes up continuously in software development, which is that you'll have um, the team, the wider team requests the same information in a dozen different places. And sometimes you need to get a little bit creative to make the job easier for yourself. And you know what? You're right. They'll ask for the information in one place. They'll look at it once and then I'll never look at it again. And eventually you'll rip it back out. So there's no point integrating it. Um, but however, in the, in the case of low-code, no-code tools, you know I'm generally against them. You know my general position is that you should probably end up doing it yourself for the greater good in the long term. And I really have to stress in the long term, it really does make things easy for you. You always have that, that, that also that, um, uh, that thing, which is, like, hey, we can just switch it in the future. This no-code tool is an export option. We can just make it ourselves in the long term. Guess what? It never happens. It, I've never seen it happen. It never does happen. That's a complete fiction. Once your data is in one place, it's never moving again. I don't agree um, with nobody you wants there. to do it. I I think I, there's some tools around now that have some really good code export options. One of them that we do use, Retool. I was asked to set up, and I in, instead of just doing this thing myself, which would have been almost instant, I had to spend almost a day or two learning Retool. And then there was a bug with the interface or how it worked. I had to go back and fix it. For me, it was a, a real time sink putting this tool into retool. And 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 the, and the fact is that we haven't actually used the thing outside of maybe one instance where we we the website went down once due to an well, external it's, dependency. It's been used multiple times. So, but it hasn't I, been used to the point where I couldn't have just made the interface myself and they could have used that, right? Like all it was was, hey, the website's offline, enter a message. That's all it had to do. That's all I had to do. That's that's like a little, little tiny app, a little tiny API call, a little tiny Slack bot anywhere. It would have taken me five minutes with ChatGPT4. Okay, it's probably, that's probably a, a gross uh, yeah. <laughs> over, overestimation. It would have taken me a, an hour, maybe two no, um, to set up a Slack bot. So I want to counter that because I, I know what you're saying and I've felt like that many times. And sometimes I think I've used retool a couple of times where it didn't need to be used, but I've had mm. some cases where retool has saved me again, like days or weeks worth of work because I could show mm. the product manager. So again, same previous company that I worked at, uh, 
he wanted to be able to run some reporting and have basically a UI for the database where he could build out tables and then interact with some of our other services. And so I set that up for him in less than a day. And that saved me weeks worth of building a custom admin panel with custom authentication, building a whole bunch of custom UI to do a bunch of reporting on database rows and like database data and, and analyzing and potentially sending push notifications or so there are times where it's like a tool like retool is brilliant where you don't have to build the UI. You just yeah. drag in a bunch of tables. It's already integrated with a bunch of databases. And then you can deploy this little app, which is behind a specific authentication that only specific people can use. And it can save but you here's, weeks he, worth he, of work. Here's the flip side of that, right? Like, yeah, I understand that. But with like, again, with 23 Sharp, we never had a user management system. Our user management system was if something happened, there was like, a, we called it security events in, in 23 Sharp. It was in telephony. There were a lot of people trying to take our money, scan the website. There were active attacks against us that we repelled. One where we lost a small amount of money. That was, actually, I would say it's not an insignificant amount of money. It hurt when we lost it, but we just had to absorb it and try and get refunds where we could. Our system did, would not have benefited from an admin panel. What, what, what was, we had set up was if we saw a security event, the API would first do its best to try and mitigate it automatically. If it saw too many security events from a single account, it would ban the account. If we saw a user sign up, we could one-click ban it out of Slack. We had a little link that just said, ban this user, valid 24 hours. It would kick you out to the API, which had a unique token to ban a user for the 24 hours. You could just get rid of them. That was a really good system for us and how that worked in, in Slack. You can call that a no code because it was getting published into a chat message. I disagree. It was code. It got set up well. If I had to then switch over to um, you know, an external panel, look that user up, find them, ban them, et cetera. The other part I wanted that to say is, and I know that's just like one, that's just one use case. The other part I want to say is if you're a new person getting into trying to launch your own startup, I don't think the fact that no, something like Retool is no code it's not no it's code. Kinda it's kind of codey. No, no, it's not a low no code. code. It's a it's a low code. Yeah, you're going to need to know some stuff. And on top of that, it's like what what if you're getting started into into launching a startup, if you have an idea to get it out there, you should go with whatever real no code is. If you've got like a list of jobs that you need to update, you're making like a job board. You should go in there and manually update that job board and see if you can sell this thing. Um, validate, right? But yeah, low code tools. I feel like they're just there to appease project managers, certain people in the team who just want more input. I, they just generally, my in my mind, they don't fit into the long-term vision of the code base or like the technical details of the project. Oh, man, I project just totally needs to stand on its own. I know you do, but this is where this is why I don't know. <laughs> this is why uh, this is why uh, I've got fewer gray hairs than you. I don't know. I'm gonna <laughs> have to come up with something. I'll find something that we can compare. Um, but so I, I would say yeah, this is I, why I have I have fewer gray hairs from than you, and I'm a lot older than you are. So because well, your, hair, your hair was always gray anyway. So yeah, you just can't see it because it's kind of blonde. <laughs> got but, an AI and, and I love the fact that we disagree here, and I would challenge your experience. Because in a lot of cases... I'm feeling challenged right now. I just woke up like hard now that you're trying to challenge me on something. Go. You have either worked in a case where uh, like, and you're in a company and you're in an isolated area working on a specific, uh, a specific part of that and haven't had to manage 
too many other stakeholders in terms of data management. There's already, there's been other people How do that because it's oh. a large enough company. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't yes. think that's, I've been in companies like that in situations like that as well. And so yeah. there's always other teams and they're always doing their own thing and you're not always across what they're doing. Exactly. And there's a large enough team of people where you probably can go and write custom solutions because you've got enough money, enough funding, enough resources to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Or, and so the other flip side is, or you've been working on products yourself where you're very mm-hmm. capable of doing these things yourself and using a some code, like a low code solution doesn't make any sense. Because you can either do it manually with a bunch of scripts on your local machine. It's not going to save me any time, I'll tell you that. No, it'll be slower. Yeah. Because mm. you can do it yourself. And so- I just don't see the benefit that anything that we've done, and now I don't know your experience at your previous company, anything we've done with low-code or no-code solutions where it saved us time in the long run, where I couldn't have just done it myself if I'd just been like given, given the leeway to do it. So, um, and, and so this is where, this is where it's, it, maybe it's a niche because there's hmm. plenty of people in the case where they can do it themselves. And there's plenty of people in yeah. large enough company where there's plenty of resources. But I suppose mm-hmm. my experience has fit into that niche where I'm working in small teams with limited resources and, but people, but people who need to do jobs that would require me to continually write and update code, which is a waste of my time because I should be spending my time on developing the core product of the company to try and make some money. And so this is where I'm of the opinion that if it's not part of your core product, you shouldn't be building it. You should be building your core product and using third-party services that do the other things to support your product really well. And but so couldn't, couldn't you also say that something like that, that mail sending thing is called a core part of your product because it's poor part of the user's flow. And on top of that, like I, I, I know I'm just a perfectionist here and there's going to be so many people that disagree with me. But for me, the actual overall state of the tech is just as sacred as the actual product execution and vision itself. If your tech sucks, your product will not sell because users don't want to use a crappy product. Actually, I don't care. Oh man, if they, they get turned off, if they, if they get turned off by bugs, if they get turned off by latency user engagement drops. We know that. If it screws up and just completely does something wrong, you lose trust and you lose users. And also not only that, but you lose time to actually execute new features because your code base is a mess. Like you've got to treat like, this, this is, thing with respect. This is the point. So, I, oh man, there's so much in that that I want to unpack and, and go back <laughs> on. Uh, and we've run out of time. We'll so, see you next on. week. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Let's just unpack that. Let's first of all talk about, you said if your code base sucks, uh, you know, it can have ramifications on your users. And, uh, and like your usage. It's going to limit your growth, I think. And yeah. it can do. And that's actually my point exactly. I don't want to write extra code that needs to be maintained on a small team. So you're saying that it would be better for me to go and write that custom integration manually in a hurry yep. where I've then got to no, go. No, not in a hurry. But I if don't... you're not given the leeway to be doing it by your team, your team sucks. If your team doesn't understand that things take time and they give you allocate no, a suitable amount of time is, to get some time done, That is not right. Because in these large companies, yes, absolutely. At a large company, absolutely. I'm talking about small companies with limited runways that are trying to validate a product idea. So I do agree with that, but that's one use case. So let's talk about validating a product idea. So I've built a product and I have people using it. 
I now need to know what, like whether or not this is working. And so I've got some resources. I've got a development team and I've got a product manager who needs to valid, like to understand how the users are dealing with the app, how their users are using the app, what features they like. And so email is one tool to do that. Then you just blast them. You find an email tool and you blast them with a the user export. You don't need to go about blah, 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 blah. Like triggers it, sure. But if you've got subscriptions, there are some triggers and hooks that you need to tie into. You need to tell people to you know, resubscribe. You need to tell people. And again, Your I don't see- Your payment platform should be handling these things. You shouldn't yeah. rewriting code for that if you don't need to. If you can do that with a no-code solution, you should be doing yeah. it with a no-code solution. Because Zapier gives you uptime. Zapier wrote the integration. Zapier has a team of engineers working. Integrating with Zapier as hell. But. <laughs> Take it from someone who's done let's, it. Let's talk about this. So Campaign Monitor has yeah. a team of engineers who've built the integration. Zapier has a team of integration uh, uh, engineers who are ensuring uptime and ensuring that their integrations work correctly. Uh, mm. AWS has got a team of engineers working on EventBridge. MongoDB has got a, like a team of engineers that's working on the integration with, I'm not going to do a better job myself in a hurry writing that integration when I can just plumb it all together in a UI in 30 seconds and hand it over to the product manager to do the job. I agree with you, but I think you write the code that matters. And if you can use a, like a, an external tool and write no code to get a job done so you can write the code that matters and then spend the time make writing good code in your actual application, that's where you should be spending the time writing the code. Okay. And we, we're, we're going to go on a loop with this. I think we've talked about this a few times, which is that I disagree. <laughs> I don't want to write an admin panel. I'm not going to say I write, like writing an admin panel. I want to write a solution that will give them what they need as fast as humanly possible. I mean, we have an admin panel at work. It's horrendous. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't even care. It's terrible. That that control panel is like the thing you from mean the hell. Pack? And the most pack admin panel. Yeah, oh, that's God, so bad. That's it's bad. So bad. It's so terrible. Yep. And you know what? There, there are a lot of companies who build internal software, and the people who make the internal software for critical tools end up being terrible. There was one um, at the at the company called Bungie that, that had had an internal tool, and they accidentally shipped an update to one of their latest games where an asset was called the name of the internal tool because that's its default name and nobody noticed. And it just like replaced a bunch of strings in the file and it went out there in the game, video game. That sort of thing sucks. Uh, I, 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 so, and that was a- but that's, that, that's a failure tool. of their investment. That's a failure of their investment on their custom written tool. And as a perfectionist, I cannot accept. I mean, to be fair, the company is how old now and no one's gone back and bothered to rewrite it or give it any love and care. Well, they deserve what happened to them. That's it was a complete a, storm amongst the players. They got slammed hard for that. They got made fun of. The mockery was terrible, but they deserved it because they made no reinvestment on their tech, where it obviously sucked. But, and see, this is where I again like invest the invest the time in the tech that needs time invested in. Write code that you have to write. But if there's a tool where you don't need to write the code, then I just don't think you should because. It's hard to maintain code. It takes time. It distracts you from your primary goal. You'd be great in enterprise, mate. This is the whole theory behind enterprise sales, right? And and, and actually, I'd love to talk about this in a podcast sometime, uh, in a future podcast sometime, which is like why enterprise sales is so much easier than um, in small business sales or consumer sales, right? You know, you know the saying is that 
friends don't let friends start B to B B to C businesses. <laughs> uh, and so B to C is business to customer, just for those who are who don't know the terminology. Yeah. And B to B is yeah business, business to, to business. business is a lot easier. It's a lot easier because the, the, the way that the way that they work is that they have one requirement they need to solve. They'll go out there and purchase anything that solves that requirement, and it's cheap enough, and it looks like it'll work with their solution. And this is I get it. Yeah, and this is why Zapier charges so much. Like Zapier charges a couple of hundred bucks a month for a decent plan mm. that's a that's like a half a day of a developer a month to potentially handle integrations between a whole bunch you of different what? services without writing any code no kelvin i will concede that this is a very <gasps> profitable industry however for projects that i have worked on in these stages it has not made sense at the enterprise level. I completely agree it makes sense. I think at a certain team size and product size, it makes sense to start integrating some external tools. However, I wouldn't equate ex- external tools and external platforms with low code, no code, which is designed to be able to like zip, zop, zap, and then pop it in your app. You know, I don't think that all of those are. But they are low code and no code tools. I think it's stretching the definition to say intercom's a low-code, no-code tool. Yeah, intercom, maybe not. Well, maybe. Mailchimp. I'm more talking about you know, the you know what I'm saying? Like, how, how far are we stretching this? I feel like low-code, no-code means that you zip, zap, zap and put it in the app, right? This is the new, the new saying I'm coming up with. <laughs> That's going to be my title for my low-code, no-code tool, Zippy. Um, but it's it's it, 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 you're stretching the definition when you say those are uh, are not external I was more talking about Zapier, uh, like Zapier style integrations, and I don't even think that's a low code, no code tool. I feel like they're just jumping on the they're just jumping on that marketing wagon. It's an event. It's an event business. It's like hey, this if this then that if this then that this happens there, you do that there. That's not low code, no code tool. That's just you can do some pretty complex um, like control statements in Zapier. We had oh yeah, and actually it's it's not complex enough. I got to tell you that they need to dial it up. But it's (laughs) yeah. So as soon as you're doing control flow you know in like if this condition then do that mm. i like i feel that falls into like a, a low code no code tool situation sure if you're just connecting two services yeah. but it's saying that it's replacing my need to write integration code and plumbing code and yeah. honestly like that i find that kind of code soul destroying it's just like all i'm doing is looking up one api and then writing a server that's yeah. to another api and mapping Once the data between enough the time, two. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like this is the third time I've put Firebase into an app in as many weeks, I believe. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I'm at this point where I'm just like, oh my God, here I go again. You know, I've got to make a dev project and a prod project. Yeah. And I've got to set up these environment variables. That sort of stuff I wish I could farm out to ChatGPT for. I can't. I just have to go and make the files. And you can sort of use Terraform now for Firebase projects. So I'm actually really interested to see if I can just get some basic Terraform scripts. So for those who don't know, Terraform is a custom language, custom programming language for provisioning servers. For like, that's, I'm probably using technical terms to explain technical terms. A custom programming or custom scripting language that helps you set up infrastructure. Is that a better? Anyway. You can no, now use you, the back end, the back end of websites and the back end of apps. Yeah. So, like how it actually works from what you can't see in the it, UI. Yeah, it yeah. turns on servers for you effectively, and it creates yep. 
Oh man, I can only use technical words. I'm really struggling here. <laughs> but I'm actually interested to see if there's like a Terraform, somebody just like puts a gist out there with a Terraform script for provisioning um, Firebase instances because I spin up so many of them and I'm so sick of doing it manually that I really do want yeah. just a script. Or honestly, if I could just have like an, if I had a tool that I could just go in and go, boom, button pressed, give me my environments, you know, give me a dev and mm. a prod environment, get everything set up, give me all the files I need integrated into my app for me because i'm sick of doing that oh god so am i that's the sort of stuff you know you just you just wish the ai could do it for you yeah uh, but i don't trust it i want to review all the code those things generate <laughs> and that's the other part i just want to say to wrap up if you do use a no code low code verify everything it's giving you uh because especially on the age of ai especially in the age of ai man they come up with some yeah. funky stuff Man, we didn't even get to touch on, like, there's so many no-code tools that use AI to do a whole bunch of generation. And I don't oh, think yeah. we're Increase your yet. valuation 5,000% by putting the OpenAI API in your, yeah, in your yeah. app. <laughs> I, 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 I see a lot of these tools integrating AI. And I'm do, after our experience over the past eight weeks trying to integrate AI into a product, I'm dubious as to how good those products will be right now. But mm. with the speed that AI is moving, that might look very different in the next 12 months. Well, we're all sort of waiting for that next model to come out, aren't we? AI, AI hype is sort of paused while we're waiting for um, someone to beat ChatGPT4, uh, GPT-4 rather, and I, it can only be open AI at this point, I think, are going to come out with the next, the next model. And we'll see just how good it is. But I feel like we're probably approaching the limits of what a large language model can give us in terms of in terms of reasoning, in terms of so yeah. like how, how much how much can you how much can you create when your interface is only language, right? That was a question we answered ourselves building this latest product. You can only at certain point you need a bit more than now. Oh, it's mostly modal. You can also give it images. Yeah, that's cool. But you know, in the back end of your app, you're literally just talking to it <laughs> and then changing your UI based on that conversation. You're kind of getting there. The model itself needs to be smarter. And maybe that's just more more data and more time spent baking the model. But I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm not a, an AI expert and there could be an AI expert listening in saying what a moron. Yeah, hit us up. But we'll we're, we're, always, we're always happy to be uh, called yeah. out. And you can see we're happy to disagree with each other. Uh, in, Come on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we'd love to talk to you. But yeah, so let's yeah, just close 100%. that out. Like I personally, so in, in summary, my perspective is there's still going to be programming jobs for quite some time, maybe different. Mm -hmm. I do think mm -hmm. that there'll be less UI work mm -hmm. done and more, you know, complex, like complex logic in the background. Yeah. Uh, but I still think mm -hmm. there'll be plenty of people writing UIs by hand for quite some time because there's plenty of people out there who are really good at it and it'll still be faster for them to write the code themselves. Uh, I personally see value in these no-code and low-code tools in a lot of situations, but it does depend on the context of your team, like who you've got available yeah. and what you need to do. And I just personally believe that write the code that matters and don't write the code that doesn't because every line of code needs to be maintained. Sure. And to wrap up my position, real developers don't use low-code, no-code, <laughs> and real designers don't use AI to generate designs. That's my position. And, and uh, if you're good enough, you'll come up with something better than an AI ever would. Every time I've tried to use AI assets in like design assets, they just look so off place. 
just, uh, just, just, just do it yourself. You'll learn how to do it. You'll have a good time. You'll skill up yourself. Do you want to be the moron who has to use AI for like literally everything? Or do you want to be the smart person who's using AI to teach themselves and then do the thing themselves, you know? I feel like you're just, just baiting just me here, man. Yourself. I want to get back into this, but no, we're no. done. We're done. It's <laughs> I've already heard your position and I was unimpressed. <laughs> I have so much more to unpack on this topic. Maybe we'll have to revisit this. Sure. And I'll walk you through the minimal, sleek, beautiful design and code I'm putting together for this new uh, side project. And you can let me know how in any way low code, no code could have benefited me <gasps> at any stage. Yes, I'm not keen. Sp- spun out my bundle size and just disfigured oh, my code base horrendously. I think I, I think I can do that because I, I, I'm, I'm sure I could save you some time so that you could spend some time improving other parts of your app and only writing the code that matters. We Challenge accepted. <laughs> oh, yes. Done. All right. I'm All actually right. very keen to see that. Oh, wait. Stripe doesn't count as low code, no code. That's my one condition. Stripe is not okay. low code, no code. That is a platform. <laughs> it is a platform, but it does save you writing some emails. Code. But anyway, yeah. That, anyway, let's not get back into it. We'll uh, we'll pick this up. Okay. So, Pat, tell us where people can find you if they want to get in touch. Uh, usually underneath a bridge in Fortitude Valley. That's my home. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 techhuddle.show, that's our website. And you can also find the link to my Twitter and Kelvin's Twitter in the description of our podcast, which will be in your app. Um, hopefully you are also following us and like what you hear. Yeah. And so Give us feedback. If you don't want to go to techhuddle.show, you can always find me on Twitter at at Kelvin Bullwinkle, if you can spell my name. And Pat, yep. you are at Pat Snacks. Pat Snacks, and also my personal site at patsnacks.com man, if you want to read good, up on me and what handle. I do. I, uh, Thanks, man. I tried to get it on Discord and it was taken, of course. Remember, I tried to I, I tried to just get Bullwinkle and somebody's squatting it. And then you wouldn't let me change it to Bulkwinkle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll only let you change it to bulk wiggle once you bulk up, man. Right. You're getting there, but you know you can't take down Mark Zuckerberg yet, so yeah, yeah. you're not bulk wiggle. That'd, right. that'd be your stage name, Zuckerberg versus Bulk Winkle. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Elon's dead on the floor. <laughs> the last cage match. They haven't even bothered <laughs> taking him out yet. Oh, oh no, no, that's no, terrible. Yeah, can't say terrible. that. All right, we want Elon on. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.